0: Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And
1: today we are talking about the reason for the season that lots of you have probably never heard of, Mithras. Uh, Mithraism was practiced in the Roman Empire and elsewhere in other forms um, in the first few centuries of the Common Era and was seen as an early rival for Christianity.
0: Yeah. So as a summary of all of his forms, uh, Mithras was created by a virgin birth in a cave on December 25th. His birth was attended by shepherds, maybe. Mithras was considered a great traveling teacher and master. He had 12 companions or disciples, and he promised his followers immortality. Mithras performed miracles and sacrificed himself for world peace. He was then buried in a tomb, and then after three days rose again. His followers celebrate this event each year at the time of Mithras' resurrection. Mithras is also associated with Sol, the sun, and so his followers celebrated Sunday as his sacred day. Is anyone else getting some deja vu? Is it just me? Well, it turns out it's a lot more complicated. Jesus isn't actually just a Mithras tribute band. So I'm going to start us off with the story of Mithras from specifically the Roman Empire. So, get into your coziest jammies, grab a cup of cocoa, and join me by the fire. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I creeped myself out. Okay, so the Roman deity Mithras appears in the historical record in the late 1st century of the Common Era, and then disappears from it in the late 4th century CE. Unlike a lot of major mythological figures of Greco-Roman religion, like Jupiter and Hercules, we don't really have a good record of the mythology of Mithras the god. And so all of the available information is from depictions on monuments, and then very, very limited mentions of the Mithraic cult in literary sources. So here's what we know. Mithras was born, fully formed, from a rock, a child of the earth itself. And I have no idea what he did for the first part of his childhood because that's not on monuments. But the next time we hear from him, he's riding and then killing the life-giving cosmic bull whose blood fertilized all the Earth's vegetation. And then Mithras meets with the sun and I saw different versions where it's like the sun God or a God personifying the sun. Anyway, the sun kneels to Mithras submitting to him and then the two of them shake hands like bros and they feast on cosmic bull parts. That's pretty much it. All right. Worshippers of Mithras in ancient Rome had a complex system of seven grades of initiation and communal ritual meals. Um, initiates called them Themselves syndechioi am i doing that right well i would i i don't know i think it would be syndexioi okay because it's roman and not and Greek. Uh, yeah because like dextrous same yeah same right same? hand yeah. left hand dextra yeah. sinistra okay so they called themselves syndexioi um and that translates to those quote united by the handshake bros <laughs> bros 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 <laughs> bros uh mithras worshipers met in underground temples now called Mithraea. That's the plural. The singular, in case you really want to know, is Mithraum, and there are actually a lot of surviving Mithraea today. There were, like I said, seven grades of initiation into Mithraism, and we know this from the letters of Saint Jerome. Um, a prominent scholar of Mithraism named Manfred Klaus states that the number of grades, seven, must be connected to the planets, but who knows? A mosaic in the Mithraum of Felicissimus. Felicissimus Um, in the site of Ostia Antica depicts these grades with symbolic emblems that are connected either to the grades or are symbols of the planet. So that's how we know that these things are connected. The grades also have an inscription beside them commending each grade into the protection of the different planetary gods. So I guess at some point this was all linked into astronomy. So here are the ranks. If you you want to be inducted into the ranks of Mithraism, this is the, the order of ascension, starting from uh, the lowest order of importance and then going up. So first is the raven or the crow, and its symbols are the beaker or the caduceus, which is the, um, the twined snakes around the staff that's the symbol of the medical profession today, and the planet mm-hmm, is Mercury. Mm-hmm. Next mm-hmm. is nymphus, the bridegroom. Symbols are the lamp, the handbell, the veil, and the circlet or diadem and the planet is Venus. And it's worth noting, because those, those sound all very sort of bridal things. Um, you could only be a male uh, and be inducted into uh, Mithraism, so it this is bridegroom. Uh, next is the soldier. Symbols are the pouch, helmet, lance, drum, belt, and breastplate, and the planet, predictably, is Mars.
1: Mm-hmm. Next
0: is the lion. Symbols are the batillum, which is a shovel, sistrum, which is a rattle, Laurel wreath and thunderbolts. Pew pew. And the planet is Jupiter. Uh, next is the Persian, Perseus. The symbols are the hooked sword, which I guess Persians wielded, like a scimitar kind of thing, a Phrygian cap which kind of looks like a Robin Hood hat a little bit. Yeah, um, a it's sickle. like a,
1: it's kind of a floppy hat that kind of flops to the back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, the flop back cap, like a snapback. All right. Uh, a sickle, a sickle moon and stars, a sling and a pouch. And I assume it means sling as in the weapon, the sling, not necessarily like a baby sling or like a sling for your arm. Yeah. And then the planet slash astronomical body is the moon. Yes, I know. The moon is not a planet. Um, next is Heliodromus, the Sun Runner. Symbols are the torch, images of the sun god Helios, whip and robes. The deity involved is actually not a planet, is soul the sun the last level is the father and the symbols by the time you get to this level you are swagged up so the the symbols are the shepherd staff garnet or ruby ring chasuble or cape elaborate robes and uh, that are jewel encrusted and with metallic threads bling. and then the planet is saturn i don't like this but it reminded me of the kkk because this is kind of that system they have where everyone's like a grand dragon and a grand wizard or whatever. So it's like, if you took this and smooshed it into a bad game of Dungeons and Dragons, you'd kind of get the Ku Klux Klan. I'm not happy about it.
1: Well, like the anyway. the, the offices.
0: The... Yeah. Not yeah, the... yeah. Not, not their not their the uh, ideology. Yeah. No. No. Exclusive of that. So about 420 sites uh, throughout Europe have yielded materials related to the Mithras cult. Among those items found are about 1,000 inscriptions, 700 examples of the scene where uh, Mithras kills the cosmic bull, which is referred to as the Tauroctony, and about 400 other monuments. It's been estimated that there would have been at least 680 Mithraea in Rome alone. And again there aren't any written narratives or theology from the religion surviving today. And so uh, the interpretation of the physical evidence, you know, certain groups of people seem to argue a lot about it. On to a brief description of the Mithraeum. These, because uh, Mithras was said to have been born from a rock in a cave, um, caves and sort of underground spaces were important features of, of, this, of worship of this deity. So the Mithraeum was either an adapted natural cave or cavern or a building imitating a cave. And when it was possible, the Mithraeum was constructed within or below an existing building. So, for example, there's one beneath the Basilica of San Clemente in Rome, and uh, it has it's now been converted into um, a church crypt but it's still under there while a majority of mithraea are underground some feature open holes in the ceiling to allow some light in perhaps to relate to the connection uh, to the universe and the passing of time or it was dark in there the site of a mithraea may also be identified by its singular entrance or vestibule which stands opposite from an apse-shaped wall so a, a curved wall in which a pedestal altar stood at the back, um, often sort of recessed into the wall. Um, also, the cave called the spileum or spelunca, spelunca, what a great word, uh, had raised benches along the side walls for the ritual meal. You know, when the, when the bros feast on on bull parts. Many mithraea that follow this basic architectural plan are scattered over much of the Roman Empire's former territory, particularly where the legions were stationed along the frontiers, like Britain. Um, and then some of the others you can recognize by their characteristic layout, even though they were later converted into church crypts when the area switched to Christianity. Um, and then I found a cool Google map in my research that shows the locations of a lot of the best known European mithraea. It's just like a Google map with all the points linked to it. And so we will include that on our show notes. The one thing that we can surmise from the layout of the mithraea is that worshipers would have, after rituals happened would have reclined along the couches that lined the walls and shared a common meal and there we have it the sum total of my newfound knowledge of roman Mithraism. so thank goodness for amber because as far as i know you know a lot more about this than i do
1: Uh, ah i don't know i don't know if i know a lot more than you do but uh yeah so like so like roman Mithraism is just sort of like it sounds like like at its core like a fraternity in the original sense like it's sort of that that role of a brotherhood a, yeah like a, yeah. yeah and so you have this this sort of social structure that has its own like you know rituals and jargon and sort of there's this sort of exclusivity to it uh that so that sort of also lends to why it makes you think of the KKK of this I- idea of this secrecy mm-hmm. yeah, this yeah. Like, exclusive group. But before we, before I like get into the like what I know about this, I was wondering about that whole like switching to Christianity thing and like how common it was. And like so, I you know looked into it just a little bit, and I found this really cool piece from last year from Forbes um, that looks into the question of whether pagan temples were all destroyed or just converted. Um, and mm-hmm. I'll include that on, in the show notes. And so it's this sort of idea that, yeah, some were destroyed, others were just co-opted, um, and then others sort of a combination of the two. But all right cool yeah so i'll include that but um the romans were not the ones to invent mithraism though like by any means um they may however have created something that looked nothing like mithraism like how it did in western asia as this sort of pseudo persian religion because like one of the tiers is is Perseus is like being a persian and so it's this idea of like it's like cosplay well no it's kind of like yoga And, like, this idea of, like, there is something that is old and has, like, precepts and has things that are, like, deeply meaningful and informed over, like, centuries, if not millennia, of practice and knowledge. And then somebody comes and finds it and is, like, oh, this is cool. And they just sort of play at it. Sort of, like, creating like pulling aspects of and so actually like in this month's dirt after dark we talk about alistair crowley and creating thalema and it's sort of the parallels are definitely there in terms of yeah he just did it like nine different times yeah just like picking it up and like running with it yeah and so um so if you want to so you think about the pseudo persian religion um what what are they drawing from and so Mithra worship uh, took place in early Indo Iranian cultures. So these are people that are on the Iranian plateau moving down into the South Asian, the Indian subcontinent. Um, and so that is something, so Mithra worship took place. Um, before Zoroastrianism emerged. And so when Zoroastrianism, which is a monotheistic faith, and it was the state religion of the pre-Islamic Iranian empires um, and survives today in communities of Western and South Asian descent all over the world. Um, when, when, when is this? When are we talking about? How early? Mithra worship is 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 probably like up through maybe the 2nd millennium BCE so a long time ago um but okay. but zoroastrianism really hits its stride um when it enters the historical record in the 5th century BCE when it is the state religion of the forming Achaemenid Empire so okay yeah so these are old religions so these are very old religions that have their like the, their own thing, and so when Zoroastrianism emerged, it um, sort of absorbed Mithra um, as an angelic deity. Because remember, it's monotheistic, so Mithra becomes um, sort of like a sort of like an archangel type. Um, okay, and and so we're going to talk about Zoroastrianism and its development, its spread, and kind of the wider impact it has in in uh, today's faiths and and um, cultures in a few months we're going to do that just in time for no Rus. and so a lot of people call that persian new year but uh people far more people than just persians
0: celebrate it so i'll save zoroastrianism for later yeah the one thing i know is that freddie mercury was raised in a zoroastrian family oh that's all i got In the meantime, um, I have a slightly unqualified
1: popular history reading recommendation for folks. Um, Now, mind you, I read this a decade ago, but Tom Holland, not the actor, uh, Tom Holland uh, released in 2005 a book called Persian Fire, uh, which discusses it. So it's a um, it's historical nonfiction, but it's it's very judged. And so it discusses the rise of the Achaemenid Empire and its engagement with the various Greek polities. Um, and I do remember there being a very stirring description of Ahura Mazda, who is the Zoroastrian creator god. Uh, so it, it, that did a really good job of helping me understand faith in, in sort of the Zoroastrianism of the fifth century BCE um but cool but the whole book like relies heavily on Herodotus and is kind of biased like not in the way the Zack Snyder's 300 is which is sort of the far (laughs) extremes um but I maintain that Zack Snyder's 300 is like a pretty accurate representation of Herodotus (laughs) because it's so racist sure but yeah so if you want to read that it's a fun book like it's it's fun um but Definitely, like, read all the notes in the back and and read reviews because there are some really thoughtful reviews um, that look at the various biases. But that that being said, that's my brief departure into Zoroastrianism. How, the question remains today, how did Mithras make his way to Rome and into the hearts of our bros, the Syndexioi? Um, there are some theories, and it definitely seems to be pretty difficult to find common ground among those who have their theories and according to the encyclopedia ironica they say quote two statements at least may be made with some confidence about the century-long scholarly controversy over these questions first that at the beginning of the third millennium of the common era uh, there is still no consensus and secondly that in the last three decades the balance of opinion has shifted rightly or wrongly in favor of reinvention over continuity so, so these, okay. there are these two camps of thought about whether um, it just sort of evolved slowly as it got to Rome, or whether somebody in Rome just picked it up and ran with it, where they're like, this seems cool. And and so the original theory- the, they yogurt. Basically, yeah. And so the original theory was uh, put forward in 1899, when a scholar named Franz Cumont uh, proposed that Mithraism came to- so, they people will use the west and the east but i don't care for that um and so mithraism came to europe as a form of romanized mazdaism which meaning like the worship of ahura mazda and mazdaism yeah so so mazda the car company is like part of its sort of brand mythology is that it is named for mazda ahura mazda um so it's like half a, like a play on the name of the founders uh, of the original founder um and then half a Mazda because he's like the bearer of light, the bringer of light and they wanted these cars to bring light into people's lives. Um but also the
0: <laughs> I'm I'm more of a practitioner of Toyota Camryism. Oh jeez.
1: Um but the Mazda logo like what's on the car on the front of the car that yeah, it's little the beat,
0: eternal flame it's thing, the-
1: right? i think it's more like the solar disc like the winged solar like oh. the winged sun that you see as um because you don't see you don't see mazda anywhere you don't see pictures of Ahura mazda um in a lot of representations you just see him as like this holy presence and so oh, it's like prince he just has a symbol yeah, yeah i guess <laughs> Okay. So Kamant thought that this Romanized Mazdaism made, made this very much still a Persian religion. Um, and so at that point in Persia, in, at that point in Rome, what we think of as Persia, they thought of as Parthia. Just a little geographical confusion for you. Um, but okay. like, even though it was a Persian religion, it was one that had changed dramatically as it spread through Chaldea. And so Chaldea is southern Iraq, roughly what used to be Babylonia. Like I think that it's Abraham, the patriarch Abraham is it Abraham who's from or of the Chaldees? Is Abraham from Or? I don't know. So like Or of the Chaldees, Chaldean, same, same. And so when Mithra moved through there, he picked up attributes of Shamash. And so Shamash was the Babylonian sun god, also the king of the pantheon. Um, and then as it moved further towards Rome, it moved through Anatolia, which is Turkey-ish today, where um, folks called the Magusians, who were the Hellenized Magi of the Iranian diaspora. So you have, like, Indo-Iranian communities that are Greekified. Um, and so <laughs> it picked up some other cosmological attributes, including its eschatology. And eschatology is, put simply, thoughts about the apocalypse and the end times, you know, all that fun stuff. Yeah, so the book of Revelation is an eschatological. Is Christianity. Christianity. Yeah. 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 And okay. so, so Kumant's theory makes it sound like everything has this very nice, clean, fluid movement from its origins to its final form. But as listeners of The Dirt already know. Hi. Um, that's not really how things happen with people. That's not how people do things. And so when scholars look at the evidence, there appear to be these messy midpoints over time. And clear points of what's called syncretism. Yeah, I'm going to need you to explain that to me. Syncretism is the term used to describe instances of elements of disparate religions being blended together to form a new, distinct religious figure or tenet. So syncretism seems to come with conquests, religious or political. And so most famously, when Alexander the Great, like, got all over the place, like, there's a lot of syncretism that happens in his wake, um, but this happens when people try to make the, the religions that are imposed upon them work. It's like try to fit them into how they view the world and how they move through their lives. Um, but it's also a way for evangelizing believers to try to make their faith more palatable
0: to the people that they hope to convert. And, and is it like taking the pagan Yule log and then saying, hey, that's a part of Christmas now.
1: Uh, yeah, that, that sort of, yeah, like, uh, I think that's less a, like, religious syncretism, but, like, definitely a cultural one.
0: More of a cultural, so, okay. Yeah.
1: So it can take the form of, like, little things, like representations of a deity shifting to look more Hellenistic. So you see, um, actually, you see in art from South Asia, um, after Alexander got there to India, you see deities that are, like, Hindu deities that look Greek. Um, they they look that huh. looks like Greek art, um, and so it can be something like that where it doesn't necessarily affect what's underneath it, but it just it's just different now, just um, or like aesthetically can, different. Yeah, or it can be very very different, like how Sikhism emerged as a faith that pulls from both Hinduism and Islam. And some faiths are very resistant to syncretism, uh, like Orthodox Christianity, as the name suggests. Um, Not going but, anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, and,
0: and Orthodox Judaism, for that matter.
1: Yeah. So, so there are the things where it's it's harder to kind of make it work. But like it, as you move out, but you see religious practices and expressions today everywhere. They reflect the people that are practicing them. So you can have uh, two individuals from different parts of the world who profess the same faith. They believe in the same religion. And they think that they're doing the same thing. And, you know, on like kind of a high level, sure. Um, It's not my place to say whether it is the same or not. But they could meet each other and be like, wow, it looks totally different. And that's no different 2,000 years ago. If anything, it would be more the case because we don't have the internet and we don't have TV. Back then, two thousand years ago, you don't have as tight a uh, like you don't have as as strong a tether to if your religion has a a point of authority or or sort of who establishes the orthodoxy. Um, It can kind of you you just kind of go with what go with what works, and you see that sort of on the edges of empires and the edges of um, how far religion has gone where where people just fit it into yeah. to what they know. And so you see this in like an example that you hear a lot is about going to Britain and and Ireland and the saints and how you incorporate what they call pagan uh religious figures as saints or in mm-hmm. in Morocco you see uh Berber traditions that kind of fit in with Um, with Islam. And so the way it's practiced and the way it's expressed looks a little different.
0: Yeah, actually, I've got another example that I'd really like to do an episode about sometime, which is that there's this whole community of Jews in Ethiopia, and their practice of Judaism looks very, very different from uh, what you would see in, in Israel or in even in Europe. Um, but it's super interesting. Yeah. And- like I
1: love examples of things like that because it, it is just this, a very clear example of how like faith and religion is living and exists because individuals and people practice it and people right. always put a spin on things. And Definitely the case for Mithraism. And so if we're going to say that these links across time, geography, and theology are the result of a continuity, um, what the people who support this idea are saying is that the evidence is so strong and the similarities are so obvious that there's no way that it can be anything but a continuity. So it's not, it's not coincidence. Um, and so reinvention theory, however, says that it's more a matter of correlation, not causation. And that there are mm-hmm. plenty of other explanations for how cults and religious practices throughout Western Asia and then into the classical world might look si- similar. And so it's, it's this idea of, you know, like Occam's razor, like, well, what's, what makes yeah. more sense? Is it, is it just that like, everybody's got stuff like this going on or is it, like, there's no way that it could be anything but. So this is a, another quote from um, the Encyclopedia Ronica, which says, Accordingly, no transfer scenario is required beyond a certain awareness of, quote, Oriental wisdom among Mithraism's founders. So really what they're saying is that all you need to know is some stuff that you can be like, Oh, yeah, like this is very Persian of us. We're doing Persian things and just kind of going with it and which could lend to kind of the silliness of some of these things and and that like one of the tears is like you become a persian and you wear a parthian cap and like it's just this so it's like very um tropey and sort of like
0: stereotypes yeah. it's very much a stereotype it's literally like <laughs> a bag of persian costume yeah yeah and and so uh for the folks that
1: that believe in discontinuity or kind of reinvention of mithraism there are two camps and they refer to themselves as strong and weak just like (laughs) quarks um and so (laughs) that was a deep cut for me um yeah. So science. So the strong form of reinvention um uh, notes the undeniable similarities but then describes the cult its origins and the early development entirely in terms of Rome. And so you've got these socio-religious cultures of Rome. So it's very much Roman and it's it's not at all it's, it's not at all like Indo-Iranian. It's not at all Western Asian. Uh, and they locate mm-hmm. the cult's origins and point of departure firmly in the late first century Rome. So it takes place in Rome. They just made it up and they just kind of cobbled it together there. And it has nothing to do with. So it's not it's like it's not about Persian. It's about Roman. And so it's just sort of reflecting them and just sort of them projecting themselves onto it okay um and it so it does it is not in any way a reflection of any kind of persian identity or like like a por- persian origin for this transmission and so there's this weaker form that says that maybe there were people who were familiar with the, like that Iranian religion and that Western Asian religious, like the set of religious precepts. And, or maybe they were out on the margins of the Roman empire. And then they came in, uh, like maybe somebody knew something and then they came in <laughs> and people started so like bought into it and it grew from there. So is it starting from zero, like starting from, Starting from nowhere and just sort of making it up and, and glomming onto things? Or is it starting from somewhere and then letting it change? So it's sort of
0: Yeah, I know I know which one seems more practical, but then again, I also know that, you know, in biology, convergent evolution happens. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting to think about.
1: Yeah. So the entry for Mithraism in the Encyclopedia Ronica is available online and there are many Many more comprehensive details on all the ways in which Mithraism and Mithra worship <laughs> are and are not similar. And so was, if you want to deep dive into that. Yeah. And there's also like a good bibliography, because the Encyclopedia Ranica is like a it's like a real like a, a real like scholarly venture. So it's kind of dense, mm-hmm. but they're but it's still really great. Um and then Mithra appears in another less well known to the the average listener uh religious movement unknown to me yeah so this one's fun um so it's this religious movement known as manichaeism and so manichaeism emerged in the third century of the common era in parthia and they worship mannequins no no uh nope 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 and and so this is during the Sasanian Empire. So it's Parthia. So it's Sasanian Empire. So what it is, is the third century and what is today Iran. The, like the first half of the first millennium beast, uh, the first millennium of the common era is like a black hole to me. I just like have studied it so many times and just everything falls out of my head. And so I'm just like, oh, God. <laughs> so I had to like look this <laughs> up multiple times to be like, wait, where is it? What is it? OK. But Manichaeism is named for its pro- its prophet Mani, uh-huh, whose name is latinized as Manichaeus. Okay. So that's why it's called manichaeism because it's people who speak latin talking about him later. Okay. Um and so Mithra was adopted from zoroastrianism as a de- as a deity that fits really well into its very complex cosmology. And so manichaeism <laughs> at its heart is um it's it's this Duality of good versus evil. Okay. So, and so from this, this like struggle, that concept. Yes. So from this struggle of good versus evil, um, and it's, it's also like a form of Gnosticism. It just, and it pulls from everything, like everything that was in this part of the world at this time, like lends to it. And it, it developed further as it moved. Um, and so I can't do Manichaeism justice in this episode because it's, super complicated but we'll have to talk about it at some point specifically because like to me the most fascinating thing about it is that even its very existence its emergence its spread and its survival well into the second millennium of the common era if not today can be attributed almost entirely to the existence of the silk road Oh, cool! So, so it started in Parthia, where uh, Manichaeus was born, and started working. And mm-hmm. then, as it moved, so it, it spread. At its peak, it spread into far Western Europe and into China, like the furthest, like furthest east of China. And so, it's this really beautifully complex set of philosophies that that clearly resonated with people uh, because it went. It went everywhere, but, but like right along the Silk Road, but unlike a lot of religions that are enforced or incentivized. So, you know, you can have an enforced religion where you have to convert, um, like the mm-hmm. empires that came to the Americas, you also have, you have things that are kind of incentivized. So in, uh, some Islamic empires and Islamic kingdoms, you have this jizya tax that's, that's levied on non-Muslims. So if you convert, you avoid it. Okay. It's like a, a t- an income tax you can avoid by, by converting, which is like a little way to sweeten the deal to, to convert adherence to Manichaeism were persecuted. By everyone, because everyone hated it. Because if you draw from everyone, everyone will hate you. Because it's like, no, you just messed up our religion. And everyone's saying that. But you're like, no, I'm making it better, Like is the idea. And so Manichaeism were persecuted and pushed to the margins so far that evidence of them evaporates by the Middle Ages. Although there are small communities of Manichaeans reported to have survived into the present in China. and And so you see... So you, you see, like, the sort of the large number of languages into which Manichaean holy texts are, are translated and the spread and the complexity and just sort of its, its fluidity is really incredible. Um, and really, if anyone has heard of, uh, Manichaean or Manichaeism, today they've probably heard it in a sense that like a more literary sense of used to describe views or philosophies that rely on duality and and
0: okay yeah so that's i just learned a new fancy word that i'm gonna try and work into conversation so
1: so something manichaean is something that um depends on this sort of like binary duality okay and yeah so that is my little brief foray into these things but cool. The religions of Western Asia, like over the past two and a half thousand years, are so fascinating. And very complicated. Yeah. So I'll include some reading and some reading recommendations, both online and offline, for folks that might
0: want to know more. Yeah. Sounds like there's a lot of a lot of material to yeah. dig through. That sounds cool. Oh yeah. Cool. Well, we hope, listeners, that you've enjoyed this and that you yourselves are settling into a Fun, relaxing, and <laughs> safe and happy and warm holiday season. A long winter's nap. And uh, we, have some, we have some shouts out, don't we? Mm-hmm. In response to our control your own episode drive that we have been doing, we have two very generous and ingenious listeners who have sponsored upcoming episodes. And we're not going to spoil those episode topics, but they are good. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they'll be coming up in January. And a very special thanks to Amanda and Sadie who uh, sponsored those episodes. And you can still do it, too. If you want your very own episode of The Dirt, we will uh, research and expound on a topic of your choice, as long as it's not, you know, terrible. And you can do that at thedirtpod.com. We also have a new patron to shout out. Thank you very much to Click Click Wait. Woo! Yay! Um, Click Click Wait is another podcast. Podcast Helping Podcasts. Thank you for your support. Um, It sounds really cool. And you should go check them out. Yeah.
1: And if you want to continue to check us out or click, click, wait, but but us specifically, uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcast fix, except Spotify. Mm -hmm. You can follow us over on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And if you, when you're over there finding us on Apple Podcasts, if you could please drop us a rating of in units of five stars, please, and mm-hmm. um, write us a review, we would be most appreciative of that.
0: Yeah, it's really one of the best ways that you can support this podcast. And if you want to support us a little bit more, if you like what we do and the episodes that we research and provide you with, you can support us on Patreon. You can become a monthly subscriber or a single-time donor. And either way, uh, we would tremendously appreciate the support. And you can do that at patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast.
1: Thanks for listening. We love you. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.